Let's try that again. Good morning. We have one curveball for you. That was not supposed to be the bumper video. I don't want you to turn to Mark 9, all right? I want you to get to chapter 9, just be in the book of Isaiah as you do so, all right? And if you, get to, if you have a, grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, you're going to be on page 607. Then you're going to be with us in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, um, as you're marking there, maybe slide a piece of paper or something into Matthew 1, because halfway through the sermon, we'll jump to Matthew 1 and look at that. And so that'll be page 855 of the seat, of the seat back Bible as well. So you can just kind of mark those two. But Isaiah 9 is where we're going to start. I have a whole list of people I want to thank. I want to thank Paula and Ashley and Dorothy for playing our prelude today, and Grace and Brandon and Zach and Briar for leading us in worship. Um, and just grateful to each and every person who's here. Uh, if you're a guest, we're especially, especially excited that you're here this morning. Um, and if you have not yet, we'd love for you to stop by our welcome desk on the way out. We have a gift for you for coming and just love to connect with you briefly. Uh, secondly, I need to mention this Saturday, um, we are, our, our community outreach team is going to be putting on a meal uh, for anybody from food pantry around the area that, that, that wants a holiday dinner prepared for them. There's going to be some RSVPs. They're going to be uh, making that and, and passing that out this Saturday on the shelf in the connection right outside those doors. There's a way you can sign up to be here and help them prepare that and pass that out if you want, or if you want to just make desserts and to contribute to the meal and drop them off uh, that morning as well. There's two sign-up sheets, and we'd love uh, for that team to get a little bit of help. So so please uh, think about that. And if you're available Saturday, that's a cool thing to be a part of. Um, if you've got your Bibles open to Isaiah 9, obviously we're still under construction. Um, and so everything's on the floor today. If you don't like those sight lines, uh, I've been told there's going to be a lot of progress in the next week. We might all be up on stage, possibly next Sunday, uh, at least by the Sunday after. And I'm talking today, and so there's really nothing you want to see, all right? So just, just enjoy, enjoy the obstructed view. And uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll get uh, started in this message. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful for the opportunity that we've had this morning to, to just come to your table, Lord, and just to dine with you and remember the sacrifice you made to, to buy us this grace and forgiveness that we sing about. We're grateful for the chance we've had to worship. We're grateful for the chance to be in here together as a church, God, to, to fellowship with one another. Uh, we're grateful that you meet us in our worship of you. And most of all, God, we're grateful now for this time to turn to your word, and we ask that you would just take over all of it, that your spirit would move freely, that you'd get the glory from it, that you would say everything that needs to be said this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So last uh, week, uh, Corinne and I took the girls, we went to Ohio for Thanksgiving, and we were on the way home on Sunday evening, and uh, we had to make a detour in, into Plainfield to stop and get something to eat, and we were heading down uh, Highway 40 in Plainfield, and there was this massive uh, Christmas tree that was all lit up. And the way we were driving, the way we came up on it, Rhea was, our, we have two six-year-old twins, Rhea and Remy, they were both right behind me. Rhea was at the angle where she saw it first. And everyone knew that she saw it because she started screaming. She said, Remy, Remy, you're going to love this. Remy, you're going to love this, right? And then about five seconds later, Remy's view came into it, and we heard her start screaming, where she goes, never in my life have I seen a Christmas tree that big, right? And they're, and they're just shrieking and freaking out about it. And I, I loved it because just a few moments before that, Corinne had asked me, like, what are you looking forward to for this Christmas season? And I was more than three hours into a road trip that had been raining the entire time, had really poor visibility. I was coming off a really busy holiday already, and in my scrooginess, I was like, nothing. Like, just no, I don't, there's nothing I'm looking forward to, honestly, you know? I was like, maybe for it to be over. And then a few minutes later, we had that, and I looked at her, and I said, you know what I'm looking forward to? That. 
That's what I'm looking forward to. That, that childlike wonder, right? watching our little ones go through the season. Well, we had still over a drive left, right? Plainfield's still more than an hour away. And so we started a movie for them. And I don't like hearing the audio of children's movies when I'm driving. So we gave them headphones. And eventually we got to Rio Grande Road. And there was a house that was just completely decorated, lit up, Clark Griswold style. And I said, I started calling them, hey, Remy and Ray, Remy and Ray, look, look, look at this house. And whether they couldn't hear me because of the headphones or they just decided to fully ignore me, whatever the result was, is the same. They just continued staring at that little seven-inch screen and just couldn't be bothered. And so I kept driving, and that bothered me more and more as I thought about the driving. I was like, how had, in less than an hour... Had we taken all the wonder and all the joy and all the amazement and snuffed it out with a little screen? You see, we humans have been created by God for wonder and for joy. We have been created to worship. And somewhere along the way, we increasingly lose that more and more as time goes along. I saw a sign on a, a dentist's office in Central Ohio last week that said, kids laugh an average of 400 times a day, adults less than 15. And I was immediately skeptical. I was like, 400, that seems like a lot. And so I went on like a little Google wormhole. I was like, where, where is this study? Are they making this stuff up because they're a dentist's office, right? And I couldn't find any numbers to verify that ridiculous claim. But I found multiple different studies that, that said that kids in, in certain environments, right, in stable homes where they're not like worried about survival things, they have two parents, kids can laugh on average up to 100 to 300 times a day. And the adults one were right. It was less than 15. And I was like, well, I don't need a study to confirm that. I've seen that. I feel that. I know that. Because we have increasingly less joy and wonder and laughter and amazement as we age. And I think our van on the way home serves as an analogy for why. That as life gets more difficult, as responsibilities increase, as burdens are there, in the name of feeling like we can have some sort of control and some sort of autonomy, we want to make our world increasingly smaller. And so we fill our lives with distractions, and we overcommit our schedules, and we overcommit our families, and we pursue things that are only material or physical, and we keep score, and we quantify everything, and yes, we give so, so, so much of our time and our lives to screens. The question I want to ask you today is, when was the last time that you intentionally pursued joy? When was the last time you actually searched for beauty? When was the last time you sat in wonder and amazement pondering some big truth? When was the last time you wrestled with a mystery? When was the last time you actually pursued the presence of God? See, even in our spiritual life, right, we, we have reduced the gospel of Jesus Christ to a mere transaction. And in our focus on Jesus' death and resurrection, and we should focus on those things, but what we've done is we've started to treat it like, like it's merely a deposit and withdrawal, that I exchange my sin and I get in his turn his righteousness and forgiveness in life. And, and we make it cold, right? As, as almost like it's a banking transaction when it should be wondrous. It should result in praise and amazement. How in the world does my sin get transferred for Jesus' righteousness? But both in our familiarity with the story and our desire to make things more palatable, we keep it a transaction. And there's a part of the story that has become more and more taboo. 
There's a part of the story that we've been conditioned to drown out in tradition and holiday distraction and commercialism. There's a part of the story that even popular Christian teachers of today are advising you to ignore, to bypass, and simply focus on the resurrection. But this part of the story, I would argue, is the most wondrous. It's the most amazing. It's the most out of our grasp in the best way possible. And so we're not going to ignore it. We're going to put our full attention on it for the entire month of December. We've been studying the book of Mark for over a year, and we've been using it as a, as a biography of the life of Jesus, using that book to help us follow Jesus better, to see the example that he left for us and his way of life and his practices and his character. And we've been challenged recently by his selflessness and humility and his own definition of greatness. But starting today and through the rest of the four subsequent Sundays in December, we're going to take a pause in Mark and we're going to do a deep dive on what preceded Mark. We're going to do a deep dive on what made Jesus' life and teachings and miracles and death and resurrection possible. We're going to spend all of this month looking at the incarnation. The incarnation is simply this. It's the reality that our God took on human form, that our God became one of us. And we're going to do so through the framework of Isaiah 9, right? There's, there's a prophecy that foretold Jesus' birth 700 years before it happened. And today I want to start just by looking at that incredible truth that God himself came to us. God himself came for us in human form, starting as we all do as a baby. And my goal in prayer is that we would see just how wondrous that is. And then see how relevant it is to how we live our lives and view our world. And so I'm going to invite Lauren Foxworthy up. She's going to be reading for us Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles there to Isaiah chapter 9. And like I said, here in a little bit, we'll jump to Matthew 1, but we're going to start there. And I want to set up what is happening in Isaiah. We're going to spend the month here. We need to at least understand the context, right? And so Isaiah is actually a really cool Old Testament book uh, that's kind of like a mini Bible, right? And all the details I'm about to share with you, I think, are impossible to just simply happen by accident, in my opinion, okay? But the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning has 66 books, okay? Isaiah has 66 chapters. In the Bible, the Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. In the Old Testament, in the first 39 books, we see God's selection of the people of Israel. They're repeated again and again and again, rebellion and unfaithfulness to him. His judgment over them, his restoration over them, and then they fail and judge and restore and again and again. It just happens all throughout the Old Testament, right? 
And throughout it, every single time they fail, he keeps promising, I'm going to send one who's going to make all of this right. Now, the New Testament begins in Matthew chapter 1, and it starts with the birth of Jesus. And why that's important is because he's the one. He's the one that was promised all Old Testament long, right? He's in the Gospels. The first four books of the New Testament are about the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Then you have the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. And then you have the epistles, which are letters that apostles wrote to churches or to people to, about how to live life following after Jesus in light of his gospel. And then you have Revelation, which is all about prophesying about Jesus' second coming, his return. And so, they aren't exclusively these things, but the Old Testament, by its nature, is just, it's heavier. It has a heavier emphasis on law and judgment. The New Testament, by its nature, has a heavier emphasis on hope and grace. Well, guess how Isaiah plays out. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, which match the 39 books of the Old Testament, are heavier in emphasis on law and judgment. The last 27 chapters is a much heavier emphasis on hope and grace. And so we're in Isaiah 9. Clearly, that's in the first part, right? And the first part of Isaiah has been very dark. Isaiah the prophet is warning the people of Israel of God's impending judgment over their repeated sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness. The northern kingdom is is getting ready to be invaded by Assyria. The rest of Israel is going to be taken captive by Babylon. And so Isaiah is warning warning them of these impending disasters. These things are going to happen. And so his prophecies are filled with darkness and despair and woe. And in fact, just we started in chapter 9, verse 1. Go up one verse. Listen to how chapter 8 ends. Isaiah eight twenty two. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. That's a pleasant Christmas message, isn't it? But just like how every time in the Old Testament God promised it would not always be this way, that he would sin one to make it all right, we have in Isaiah chapter 9 a burst of light break through the darkness. Burst of hope and, and grace breakthrough. And by the way, here's the fun fact. doesn't have anything really to do with the rest of the sermon day. This is just for free, okay? Verse 1, uh, Lauren did a great job. There's some tough words in here. It, Isaiah mentions Zebulun and Nephtali, right? That, that says in the future that God will bring honor by the way of the sea to the galley of the nations. Now, those words might mean nothing to you, Okay? But what he means by this, verse 2, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But those geographical markers in, in verse 1 are all very specific locations. The way of the sea is a, is a very well-traveled road through the region of Galilee. Uh, the Galilee of the nations, right, is where the northern kingdom set, right? Zebulun and Naphtali, which were all those things set. And this is the free detail. Jesus' upbringing and all of his earthly ministry was in those very areas, Right? So everything that we read in the first several chapters of Mark was in those very areas. The people walking in darkness did indeed see a great light. And again, this prophecy is 700 years before any of that came to be. Only God could do that. Now, I have four daughters, and I'm far from a parenting expert. Don't believe me? Ask them. Actually, please don't ask them, all right? But there's something that I've tracked with children, And it's when they're hurting, it's important to them that you notice. They won't always use those words, but the way they act, the way they posture, the way they pursue you or pull the way, the way they act out sometimes, what they're asking is this, do you see me? Do do you notice that I'm in pain? Do, Do you care that I'm hurting? And can you or will you help? And there's something really powerful happening here in Isaiah 9. God is telling his children in the face of impending doom, right? He's telling humanity, I see you. 
I see the darkness. I see every ounce of the pain. And even though, yes, you caused it, I'm sending a light. And I'm sending hope and I'm sending salvation. Verses three through five of Isaiah nine are just God saying, I'm gonna keep my promises. The promises that I made to Abraham and the promises that I made to David, those will come true. Because this Messiah will indeed reign and he will bring hope to my people and he will eventually have a throne that he will rule forever. And then verse six is where it takes a twist that no one saw coming, right? The Messiah will not arrive as a conquering king from the heavens. Instead, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And listen to the names given this child. Look at verse six. It says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and, on the, gover- on, and the government will be on his shoulders. And here's the names. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, we're going to spend the next four Sundays breaking down each one of those names and what they mean. But it's abundantly clear from the titles alone that God is not just sending a child. He's sending himself in the form of a child. And 700 years later, in the first chapter of the New Testament, we find this in Matthew 1. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's going to be page 855 of the Black Bibles. you have it. Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. All right, so let's ask the question, what's the big deal? Why would, why would we pause to Mark and spend five Sundays just on this? What, what, why, is, why are we acting like this is a huge thing? Why even believe this, right? Why does it matter? Well, because it wasn't just Naphtali and Zebulun that were walking in darkness. We are still a people who are walking in darkness, John 3 says this, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And yes, just like the children of Israel, we are the authors of our own demise. It is our sin that has cursed God's creation. It's my sin that's caused me the most amount of pain in my life. But you know what that doesn't mean? It does not mean that the ramifications of living in a sin-stained world do not create enormous amounts of pain and suffering and darkness. All over our world today, there are wars. There are children being separated from families. There's trafficking, slavery. There are widows facing the holidays. There are families gathering for holidays with empty chairs that used to be full. Right? There are kids growing up in, in just really toxic, unhealthy environments. There are single parents just struggling to get through each day, not sure how they're going to make it. There are lifelong ramifications to divorce. There's strife and angst and fear and suffering and illness and despair. And like children, we just want to know, do you see us, God? Can you see the darkness? Do you see what we're facing? Do you, do you care at all? And if so, can you help them? 
And the reason it's a big deal is because God's message to us in the incarnation, his message to us in sending Jesus is this, I see you. I see every single thing you're facing. I see your darkness. I see your pain. I see your struggle. I see your despair. I see your hurt. And I have sent light. And I've sent hope for you. And I've sent grace. And I've sent forgiveness. I've sent myself. Yes, it's a big deal. John 1 says, the word, that's Jesus, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily, dwells physically in Jesus Christ. Here's my hope for our church. My hope for our church is that we will intellectually understand that God came in human flesh, but that we will never, ever lose our bewilderment at it. It's really funny to me where people try to pick apart the Christmas story, right? And you know where they always aim? You know, it's the virgin birth. And the argument is this, well, virgins don't get pregnant and they don't give birth. And my response is always like, well, yeah, sure. Like, as long as we're talking about normal human births, we're on the same page there. No disagreement. But I really don't get how that argument applies to Christmas. Because what I don't understand is how that's the unbelievable part to you. Because that's not even remotely close to the most remarkable part. The idea that the creator of everything, right, who exists in total perfection and holiness, who is worshipped around the clock in heaven, who needs nothing at all, would leave all of that and subject himself to the limitations of human form, to start as we all do in the womb, be born as a baby, and be reliant on a human mother for life, all to experience what we've experienced, all to face our temptations, and all to go to a cross to suffer horribly and die and rise again, and the entire time never gave up an ounce of his divinity and never stop being him and you're stuck on the virgin birth you talk about missing it right there's nothing normal about this c.s lewis calls the incarnation the grand miracle he writes the central miracle asserted by christians is the incarnation every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. I want to make sure you grasp everything that Jesus did, every miraculous event, every victory, every conquering, every salvation, every miracle, every event, all stem from this miraculous truth. The power of Jesus' teachings do not reside in his teachings. It resides in who the teacher is. The power of his miracles does not reside in the healings or the miracles. It resided in the one doing the miracle. It was not his death and resurrection that changed eternity. Millions have died. According to the Bible, countless will be resurrection. The power was in the one who died and was resurrected. His words have power and authority because they are the very words of God incarnate. His life has power because it is the life of God incarnate. His death and resurrection have power because they are the death and resurrection of the God of the universe. And the best part of all of it is he did it all to redeem everything. That he went down, down from the heights of heaven, down into space and time, down into human flesh, down into the womb, down even lower to the grave itself, only to come up again and bring all of creation with him. Colossians 1 says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. Well, the things on earth are things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is miraculous. 
This is all inspiring. This is impossible to fully grasp. Our hearts should be yelling, Remy, you've never seen anything like this. Right? The hardest miracle of all to fathom is the incarnation. If God can take human form and still be God, everything else is a cakewalk. The virgin birth, power over nature, healing, his own resurrection, of course, they're nothing because he's God incarnate. The incarnation changes everything about our lives and our world and our future. It gives us a hope that can never be taken away. It showcases for us God's love and his mercy and humility. And most of all, the incarnation should result in worship. Because there is no other God like our God. There is no other God but our God. Nowhere, I want you to understand, nowhere in all of history, in all of religion, even all of fiction, is there a divine pursuit equal to the one that we see in Jesus. He came to be with us. He came to sit with us in our pain. He came to meet us in our weaknesses and then to take the very thing that separates us from God, our sin and rebellion, and nail it all to himself on the cross. All to offer us life with him starting now and then forever. This divine pursuit lays to rest any questions about God's character. It proves for all time that he's good, that he's loving, and he can be trusted. And so to close this morning, I want to mention briefly three things that I believe a God like that deserves. And the first is this, is that a God like that deserves to be pursued back. He made the first move to us. By the way, he always does. But a God who chases us down is not a God that we should ignore. And so during this season, right, and into the new year and beyond, you could continue to follow the pattern that most of humanity follows. You could overcommit your schedule. You could overload your mind. You could pursue so many good things that they actually stop being good things. You could fill your life with noise and distractions and stimuli from the moment you awake by, by automatically reaching for your phone until you go to sleep by reading your phone in bed before you set it down. And then just run on autopilot. Never one time considering, pursuing, or attempting to do life with God at all. I would lovingly but strongly suggest this. Grab the phone less. Decorate a little less if you have to. Say no to anything this month. Just try one. Just say no to one of them. Stop telling yourself that the pace that you're living at is normal. We aren't called to normal. Normal's killing us. Wake up with enough margin to hear from God first before you hear from anyone else. Breathe slowly. Sit in his presence. Abide in him and his word. And have an ongoing, let that feed an ongoing awareness of him and a conversation with him throughout the rest of your day. Take your hurts and your fears and your struggles and your anxieties to him and begin to live out the intimacy of a life with God that he came here to make possible. He deserves to be pursued. He shouldn't be doing all the pursuing. Secondly, a God like that deserves to be worshiped. We can, wrap our, we can try to wrap our minds around the idea of Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, and no matter how long we think about it, no matter how long we study it, we'll always feel insufficient. It's an absolute truth, but it's not meant to be grasped. The incarnation is not for analysis, it's for worship. And so the God who took himself lower and lower and lower for us, the God who took our cross, it was not his cross, it was our cross, the God who by grace alone redeems us and forgives us fully and reconciles us back to him, that is the God who's worthy of our worship. 
and not half-hearted, apathetic, worried about others think about me, I don't like this music style, robotic, feelingless worship, but worship that's genuine and heartfelt and pure and worship that's in truth. This is the type of worship that carries far beyond the sanctuary into every area of your life. God deserves our worship. Does he have yours? And lastly, God deserves my surrender. Because God looked over our world and he said, I see you. I see what sin has done to my creation. I hear you and I have an answer. And he sent a hero that no one expected. He sent himself. It's a funny thing about control. Right? We, we human beings, we, we cling to control as if somehow control will save us. Right? As long as we can control things and we're going to feel like we've got this covered. When all that clinging to control has ever done is lead us into more darkness. All that clinging to control ever does is keeps us from finding the only solution that works, which is a full, unabashed surrender to Jesus Christ. I just want to remind you what we read in Matthew 1, verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. Verse 24, they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God came to be with us. He moved into our neighborhood. He lived in our worlds. He felt what we felt. He faced what we faced. And for 33 years, he did what we could not do. He was without sin. And then he went to a cross that belonged to us. Where God put our sin, our iniquity, our disobedience, our rebellion all on him. And on that cross, the wrath of God that was stored up for us, according to Ephesians 2, bypassed us and went fully onto Jesus. And God incarnate, the creator and giver of life, died and went to a grave. And three days later, he rose again, defeating the power of sin and death. And the rest of the story is where we are invited in. Because the Bible is clear that now we have the option of the with God life. We just need to surrender. That if anyone's willing to give up control, give up their life, to Texas Hold'em style, push all their chips in on the table and to step off the throne and say, Jesus, it's yours. I've been in control long enough. I've led this, I've led others and led myself to some pretty dark places. I want you to have it. I give you the keys. I ask you to take control. I believe in you, asking you to forgive me, and I will follow you. The Bible says your sins are washed in full. You're forgiven completely, and you are saved and redeemed and reconciled to your creator, and you get to do life and life forever with God. Are you not tired of clinging to control? Are you not tired of trying to be your own solution to all your problems? Are you not tired of trying to be the answer for anyone and everyone in your life? Is there not a longing in your soul for so much more than what you're currently experiencing? God is saying to you this morning, I see you. I see your pain. I see the struggle that you're facing. I see the hold that it has on you. I see all your darkness and I came to be your light. I came to be your solution and your hope and your answer. You've been in control up to now. What's it gotten you? Will you surrender your life to Jesus this morning and find what true life really is? Let's pray. With every, every uh, head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask a couple of questions this morning. And first, they're going to take some honesty and some transparency, which is why we're having everyone close their eyes. You can just be honest with me. 
The first is simply this. If you're here this morning, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've never trusted him to take over, to forgive you, to give you that eternal life, that life with God that begins now and lasts forever in heaven. And you want today to be your day of salvation. Would you simply just raise your hand now so I can see you and pray for you? Second question I want to leave before all of you this morning is this. I ask if there's a scenario, there's a situation, a person, an event in your life that at this point you have tried to be the own, your own answer to. At this point, you've clung to control. You've tried to fix all the problems. you tried to make everything right, and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse. And what you've never tried is just to simply surrender that complete scenario, that person, that, that whatever that is, over to God fully. And I'm wondering if you have the wisdom today to say, I want to give up this control. I want to give this situation, give this person, I want to give this worry, this stress over to the Lord fully and ask him to finally take control. If that's you this morning, will you simply raise your hand so I can pray for you? Father, you see the hands. You see the souls, God. You see the people. You see their lives. You see the situations. You saw us and you saw our darkness and it's why you came. It's why you came to be our hope. It's why you came to be our life. It's why you came to be our solution. And so we are a people who are walking in darkness and I pray that we will be a people who've seen a great light. That we would trust fully in Jesus to be our hope and to be our answer and be our solution. God, you know, you know each and every situation that was represented by a raised hand this morning. You know the pain and heartache in them. You know how long they've tried to be the answer. And so I pray that you would be pleased by their heart of surrender. I pray that you would, you would come envelop them in your grace now and then you would go to work on that situation and do what only you can do. And you get the glory from all of this. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, for our response time this morning, we're actually just gonna sing. We're going to sing a song of surrender. And my heart is, my prayer is that you would feel this, that you would believe this, that you would sing it from a place, place of truth, that you would actually mean the words. And so I'm going to invite you to stand uh, with the worship team and close out with this song.